Recorded live. Hey, it's Mike again, and it's something with the truth. My journey to find it. It's uh, 11-27-2016, allegedly. Charismatic leader manipulates your, your emotions. One of the 15 signs that you might be in a cult. Charismatic leader will try to mesmerize you with the way they dress and talk. They guilt trip you. They make impossible promises and horrific threats. They get the crowd worked up into a vulnerable and irrational frenzy right before they deliver the ultimatum. Number 10, uh, all the 15 points of being in a cult, you might be in a cult, you're given an ultimatum. The point of every cult service is to build up to the moment where the charismatic leader makes a call to action. The call for action is to either give money or take your commitment to the cult to the next level, humiliate yourself, or at least honor those who do. This is brazen manipulation. It works. Creepy cult leaders know that. Quite, quite suburban pastors know that. You remember the last time I went to, you know, I was going to that Foreign uh, Baptist church, and that guy seemed like a really nice guy at first, but he kept on touching my shoulder, touching me and touching me, and I was just like, man, this is just gross. It's a form of manipulation, so. Of course, they all have got better going on than you. But they don't tell you the truth. Then you got the, they still got this pipeline posters, protesters going on. somebody to trust. Dr. Stephen Shoemaker, five things to know about Jesus. Dr. Phil is involved in a bombshell lawsuit. He's a perfect example of a cult leader. Let's see what he has happened to him. Robin Wife that's just caked out of makeup, and she's a woman who loves her makeup. Harper Bazaar, at 61 years old, Robin McGraw is looking better than ever, and she is a quintessential example of someone who has aced gracefully and beautifully without plastic surgery, just a whole lot of makeup. And many have tried to discover her secrets, both of them. What the heck? What does that have anything to do with? Oh, I think it's just a scam. I'm trying to get you to get out there and look into it. All right, let's see what Mr. Shoemaker has to say. So it looks like Jesus stories. 
Dr. Stephen Shoemaker, assistant pastor of religion at Johnson C. Smith University, to talk about his new book, Jesus, Traveling Towards Testimony. And so his life was proved in part attested to five non Christian sources. <clears throat> Sorry about the, the dud of a start, but I uh, will. Back in here. Hope everyone's weekend's going well. I am so fatigued. I just all I'm doing is sleep. It's all I. There's good old Mariah Carey, half naked again as usual. Got to do that. Got to do. Got to pay the bills. So, yeah. See <coughs> about this Captain Kangaroo. You remember Captain Kangaroo? Yeah, you did, I do. Nothing. So the big, the big sorry, but the big delay. And but this is a recording, so you can always move it ahead. IRS denies exempt status to Christian Coffee House. The Titanic taken by a passenger. All projections. Michigan after all us who lost. Well, not much. Merkel says she will deport 100,000 immigrants. Well, that's good. Well, sorry about that. That's just kind of a that intro so I'll get into the Perusia. For our defense. Our defense. The Perusia by James Stewart Russell. A careful look at the New Testament doctrine of our Lord's second coming. So, monotonously and painstakingly, we are building the case for when the Perusia or the coming of the Lord was. Perusia in the epistles uh, to the Corinthians. The two epistles to the church of Corinth are believed to have been written in the same year, in A.D. 57. 
clean my glasses here. The two epistles of the Church of Corinthians are believed to have been written in the same year, A.D. 57. Contentions are more varied. The contents are more var are more varied than those of the epistle of uh, to the Thessalonians. But we find many allusions to the anticipated coming of the Lord. That was the that was the consummation to which in St. Paul's view all things were hastening, and that for which all Christians were eagerly looked eagerly looking, excuse me. It is rep it is represented as the decisive day when all the doubts and difficulties of the present world would be resolved and all its wrongs addressed. That this great event was regarded by the Apostle as at hand is implied in every allusion to the subject. While in several passages it is expressly affirmed in so many words, the first epistle to the Corinthians the attitude of the Christians of Corinth is in relation to the Perusia. First Corinthians chapter one seven. But waiting, looking earnestly for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall also confirm you unto the end, and that ye may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. The attitude of expectation in which the Corinthians stood is here distinctly indicated, although it is feebly expressed by the rendering, quote, waiting, end quote. The phrase used by the apostle is the same as in Romans 8.19 where the whole creation is represented as, quote, groaning and travailing in pain, waiting for the revelation of the sons of God, end of quote. Coney, Bear, and Housen translate, quote, looking earnestly for the time when the our Lord Jesus Christ shall be revealed to sight, end of quote. Such an attitude plainly implies that the object expected was understood to be near. For it is obvious that if it were a great way off, the earnest looking and longing would end only in bitter disappointment. It may be said, did not the Old Testament saints wait for the day of Christ? Did not Abraham rejoice to see his day? And was not that a distant prospect? True, but the Old Testament saints were nowhere given to understand that the first coming of Christ would take place in their own day or within the limits of their own generation. Nor were they urged or ex exhorted to be continually on the watch, waiting and looking for his coming. They have no, we have no reason whatever to suppose that their minds were constantly on the stretch and their eyes eagerly straining in expectation of the advent, as was the case with the Christians in the apostolic of the apostolic age. The case of the aged Simeon, Simeon is the proper par parallel to the early Christians. 
it was revealed to him that he should not see death till he had seen the Lord's anointed. He waited there for for the the consolation of Israel. In like manner, it was revealed to the Christians of the apostolic age that the parousia would take place in their own day. The Lord had over and over again distinctly assured his disciples of this fact. They therefore cherished the hope of living to see the longed for day all the more because of the suffering and persecution to which they were exposed. Like the Thessalonians, they regarded death as a calamity because it seemed to disappoint the hope of seeing the Lord, quote, coming in his kingdom, end quote. They wished to be, quote, alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord, end quote. Billroth remarks, quote, the Greek word for revelation refers to a visible advent of Christ, an event which Paul and the believers of that day imagined would take place within the term of an ordinary life so that many of them would be then alive. Paul here commends the Corinthians for expecting or waiting for it. The critic evidently regards the opinion as a delusion, but whence did the early Christians derive their expectation? Was it not from the teaching of the apostles and the word of Christ? To say that it was a mistaken opinion is to strike a blow at the authority of the apostles as trustworthy reporters of the saying of Christ and competent expounders of his doctrine. If they could be so egregiously mistaken as to a simple matter of fact, what confidence can be placed in their teaching? on the more difficult questions of doctrine and duty. The confidence expressed by the Apostle that the Christians of Corinth would be confirmed unto the end and be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ recalls recalls his prayer for the Thessalonians, quote, that he may establish your hearts unblameable and holiness at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. End of quote. First Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 13. The two passages are exactly parallel in significations and refer to the same point of time. Quote, the end, end of quote the, quote, parousia, end of quote. Obviously, the, quote, end, end of quote, the apostle does not mean the, quote, end of life, end of quote. It is not a general sentiment such as we express when we speak of being, quote, true to the last, end of quote. It has a definite meaning and refers to a particular time. It is, quote, the end, end of quote. They got some Greek words spoken of by our Lord in his prophetic discourse on the Mount of Olives, Matthew 23, verse 6, 13, and 14. It is, quote, the end of the age, end of quote. If Matthew uh, 13, 40, and 49, it is the end, then comes the end. In 1 Corinthians 15.24, see also Hebrews 3, verses 6 and 14, Hebrews 6, verse 11, Hebrews 
9, verse 26, 1 Peter um, 4, 7. All these forms of expression refer to the same epic. Is the close of the aeon or Jewish age, i.e., the Mosaic dispensation. This is not pointed out by Elford in his note on the passage before us. Quote to the end, and a quote, i.e., uh, to the it's Greek words, not merely quote the end of your lives in the quote. It refers, therefore, not to death, which comes to different individuals at different time, at a different time, but to one specific event, not far off, the parousia, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. No less def- definite is the phrase, quote, the day of our, of our Lord, end quote, etc., the allusions to this period in the apostolic writings are very frequent and all point to one great crisis which was quickly approaching the day of redemption at the cook the recompense to the suffering people of god the day of retribution and wrath to their enemies and persecutors the judicial character of, quote, the day of the Lord, end of quote, 1 Corinthians 13, 3.13. Every man work shall be manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it, the day, shall be revealed with fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is, end of quote. In this passage, again, there is a distinct allusion to the, quote, day of the Lord, end quote, as a day of discrimination between good and evil, between the precious, the precious and the vile. The apostle likened himself and his fellow laborers in the service of God to work men employed in the erection of a great building. That building is God's church, the only foundation of which is Jesus Christ, that foundation which he, the apostle, had laid in Corinth. He then warns every laborer to look well what kind of material he built up on that one foundation. That is to say, what sort of characters he introduced into the fellowship of God's church. A day was coming which would test the quality of every man's work. It must pass through a fiery ordeal, and in that scorching scrutiny, the flimsy and worthless must perish, while the good and true remained unscathed. unscathed. The unwise builder indeed might escape, but his work would be destroyed, and he would forfeit the reward which, if he had built with better materials, he would have enjoyed. There can be no doubt that the day in the day here is referred to is the day of Christ, the Perusia. This is said to be revealed. Quote, with fire, end of quote. And the question arises, is the expression literal or metaphorical? The whole passage, it will be perceived, is figurative. The building, the builders, the material. We may therefore conclude that the fire is figurative also. Moral qualities are not tested in the same way as material substances. The the Apostle teaches that a judicial scrutiny of the life work of the Christian laborer is at hand. He, quote, who has eyes like unto the flame of fire, end quote, is coming to, quote, search 
the reins and hearts and to give every man according to his works in the quote revelation two eighteen twenty three how clearly these representations of quote the day of the Lord in the quote connect themselves with the prophetic words of Malachi quote, who may abide the day of his coming for he is like a refiner's fire for behold the day cometh that shall burn as a furnace and all the proud yes yea and all that do wickedly shall be as stubble that's in a quote that's in Malachi three verses two and three and Malachi four one in like manner John the Baptist presents the day of Christ's coming as quote revealed by fire end of quote he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire Matthew uh, three twelve. see also second Thessalonians 1 verses 7 and 8 etc yet if any should be disposed to maintain that the fire here is not wholly metaphorical metaphorical a no a not improbable case might easily be made out in the central part in the central spot where the revelation took place the city and temple of Jerusalem the parousia was accomplished with very little fire with very literal fire in that glowing furnace in which perished all that was most venerable and sacred in Judaism men might well see the fulfillment of the Apostles words quote that day will be revealed in fire end of quote since then the parousia coincides in point of time with the destruction of Jerusalem it follows that the period of shifting and trial here alluded to the day which shall be revealed in fire is also con contemporaneous with the event otherwise on the hypothesis that this day has not yet come we are led to to the conclusion that quote the proving of every man's work and the quote has not yet taken place that no judgment has yet been pronounced on the work of the Apollo on the work of Apollos Cepheus or Paul or their fellow laborers it has still to be ascertained with what a sort of material every man built up the temple of God See if that makes any sense. It, it will still it, sh it it has still to be ascertained with what sort of laborers. It has still okay. It is, uh, it is still to be ascertained with what sort of material every man built up the temple of God that the laborers have not yet received their reward for the great proving day has not yet come and the fire has not tried every man's work of what sort it is but this is the re the re the reduction reductio ad absurdum sortum and, and shows that such a hypothesis is unattainable the judicial character of the day of the Lord first Corinthians 4 5 quote therefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord come who shall both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and make manifest the counsels of the hearts then shall every man have his quote praise from God first Corinthians 5 5 quote that the spirit may be saved in the day of uh, Jesus end of quote 
In both these passages, the parousia is represented as a time of judicial investigation and decision. It is the time when the character and motives shall be disclosed, and every man receives his appropriate need of praise or blame. The apostle um, deprecates hasty and ill-informed judgment apparently not without some personal reason, and exhorts them to, quote, to wait, quote, till the Lord, till the Lord come, end quote, etc. Does not this manifestly imply that he thought they would not have long to wait? Where, where, where would be the reasonableness of his exhortation if there were no prospect of vindication or retribution for ages to come, end quote. Is it the very consideration that the day is at hand that constitutes the reason for patience and forbearance now? In like manner, the case of offering member, uh, the case of offending member of Corinthians Church points to a speedily approaching time of retribution. St. Paul argues that the effect of present discipline exercise by the church may prove the salvation of the offender. Quote, in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ, that day, therefore, is the period when the condemnation and salva- or salvation of men is decided. But on the supposition that the day of the Lord Jesus is not yet come, it follows that the day of salvation has not come either for the apostle himself or, of, or for the Christians of Corinth or for the offender whom he calls upon the church to censure. All this clearly shows that this apostle believed and taught the speedy coming of the day of the Lord. Nearness of the approaching consummation. In 1 Corinthians 7, 29-31, But this I say, brethren, the time hereforth is short. The time that remaineth is short. In brackets. In order that the, both they that have wives be as though they had none, and they that weep as though they weep not, and they that rejoice as though they rejoice not, and they that buy as though they possess not, and they that use this world as nothing, as not abusing it, for the fashion of this world is passing away. End quote. No words could more distinctly show the deep impression on the mind of the apostle that a great crisis was near, which would powerfully affect all the relations of life and all the uh, all the possessions of this world there is a significance in this language as spoken at the time very different from that which is from that which it has in these days these are not the ordinary platitudes about the brevity of time and the vanity of the world, the stock of commonplace of moralist and divine and the divine and divines. Time is always short, the world always vain, but there is an emphasis and an urgency in the declaration of the apostle which apply, imply <clears throat> a special apply a special 
a speciality in the time then in the time then present he knew that they were on the verge of a great catastrophe and that all earthly interests and possessions were held by a slight and uncertain tenure it is not necessary to ask what that expected catastrophe was it was the coming of the day of the Lord already alluded to and the near approach of which is implied in all his exhortations Alfred correctly expresses the force of expectation quote the time is shortened henceforth i.e. the interval between now and the coming of the Lord has arrived at an extremely contracted period but unhappily he goes on to test the opinion of st. Paul as a mistaken one quote since he wrote the unfolding of God's providence has taught us more of the interval before the coming of the Lord than it was given even to an inspired apostle to see in the quote what the private opinion of Paul might be re- re- respecting the date of the Perusia or what would take place when it did arrive we do not know and it would be uh, useless to speculate but we have a right to conclude that in his official teaching save when he expressly states that he speaks his private opinion he was the organ of the higher intelligence than his own we are really not competent to say how far the shock of the tremendous convulsion that took place at quote the end of the age and quote may have extended but everyone can see that the exhortations of the Apostle would have been peculiarly appropriate within the bounds of Palestine as we pursue this instant this investigation <clears throat> the area affected by the Perusia seems to grow and expand it is more than a national it becomes an ecumenical crisis certainly we must infer for the representation of the Apostles as well as from the sayings of their master <clears throat> that Peru that the Perusia had a significance for Christians elsewhere whether within or without the boundaries of Judea it is more seemingly to inquire into the true import of the doctrine of the Apostles on this subject than to assume that they were mistaken and invent apologies for their error if it be an error it is common to the whole teaching of the New Testament and will meet us in the writings of st. Peter and st. John for they no less than Paul declared that quote the end of all things is at hand in the quote and that quote the world is passing away and the lust thereof and a quote first Peter 4 7 first John 2 17 in the end of the age of the ages already arrived excuse me try this again the end of the age is already arrived and first Corinthians 10 11 now all these things happen unto them for an example and they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come and to quote to whom the ends of the age have arrived the phrase the end of the age in the quote Greek words is equivalent to quote the end of the age Greek words so there's end of the ages is equivalent to the end of the age so they're both the same the first time I said it wrong so the, the phrase end of the ages is equivalent to 
the end of the age. And the end, they all refer to the same period as the close of the Jewish age or dispensation, which was now at hand. It will be observed that in this chapter, St. Paul brings together some of the great historical incidents which took place at the commencement of the dispensation as affording warning to those who were living near its close. He evidently regards the early history of the dispensation, especially in so far as it was supernatural, as having a typical and educational character. Quote, these things happen unto them by way of, of example, and they were written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the age are come, end quote. This not only affirms the typical character of the Jewish economy, but shows that the apostle regarded it as just about to expire. Uh, Cody Bear and Howson have the following note on this passage, quote, the coming of, the coming of Christ was, quote, the end of the age, end of quote, i.e., the commencement of the new period of the world existence. So nearly the same phrase is used in Hebrews 9.26. A similar expression occurs five times in St. Matthew, signifying the coming of Christ to judgment. This, not, this note, does not does not distinguish with accuracy which coming of Christ was the end of the age. It is the parousia, the second coming, which is always so represented. That event was therefore believed to be at hand when the end of the age or ages would de would was that would was declared to have arrived. It is sometimes said that the whole period between the incarnation and the end of the world is regarded in the New Testament as quote the end of the age end of quote. But this bears a manifest incongruity in its very front. How could the end of a period be a long uh, protected duration. Especially how could it be longer than the period of which it is the end? More time has already elapsed since the incarnation than from the giving of the law to the first coming of Christ. So that on the, this hypothesis, the end of the age is a great deal longer than the age itself. Into such paradox, interpreters are led by a false theory. But as in the true history and science, every fact fits easily into its place and lends its support to all the rest. So, in a true theory of interpretation, every passage finds an easy solution, a contribution, it quotes it, its quota to support the correctness of the general principle. Events accompanying the parousia, the resurrection of the dead, the change of the living, the delivering up of the kingdom. In entering, entering upon this grand and solemn portion of the Word of God, we desire to be, we desire to do so with profound reverence and humility of spirit, dreading to rush in where angels might fear to tread, and anxiously solicitous um, solicitous was that a quote I just read 
okay, solicitous, quote, to bring out of the inspired word what is really in them and put nothing into them that is not really there, end of quote. We venture also to bespeak the judicial candor of the reader. A demand may be made upon his forbearance and patience, which he may scarcely at first be prepared to meet. Old traditions and preconceived opinions are not patient of contradiction. are not patent in contradiction. Even truth may often be in danger of uh, danger of binging, I'm not supposed to bringing, spurned of, of what is that word? Being spurned oh I think it's supposed to be being spurned as foolishness merely because It is novel. All right. Let him be assured that the very word is spoken in all honesty after every effort to discover the true meaning of the text has been exhausted and in the spirit of loyalty and submission to the supreme authority of the scripture. It is no part of business of the interpreter to vindicate the sayings of the inspiration. His whole care should be to find out what those sayings are. 1 Corinthians 15, 22-28, quote, For as in Adam all live, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, afterwards they that are Christ at his coming. Then the end, when he shall deliver up the kingdom of God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and all power. For he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy, death, shall be destroyed, for he hath put all things under his feet. Let me just read this again. <clears throat> then the end, when he shall deliver up the kingdom of God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all, put down all rule and all authority and all power. For he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy, death, shall be destroyed. For he hath put all things under his feet. It's kind of, I can't try to figure out what I read there. But when he saith all things are put under him, it is manifest that he is expected which did put all things under him. And when all things shall be um, subdued unto him, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him that put all things under him, that God may be all in all. It's not easy to That wasn't a very easy set of verses there, huh? Although it does not fail within fall, within the scope of this investigation to enter into any detailed exposition of the passages which do not directly affect the question of Perusia, Yet it seems necessary to refer to the state of opinion in the Church of Corinth, which gave occasion to the argument and remonstrance of St. Paul. 
the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is one of great vouchers for the truth of Christianity itself. If this be true, all is true. If this be false, the whole structure falls to the ground. In the brief summary of the fundamental truths of the gospel given by the apostle in the commencement of this chapter, special stress is laid upon the fact that Christ's resurrection and the evidence on which it rests, it was, quote, according to the scriptures, end of quote, it was attested by the positive testimony of eyewitnesses. Quote, he has seen Cephas, then of the twelve. After that, he was seen of five hundred brethren at once. End of quote. Most of them were still living at the living at the writing of the apostle. After that, he was seen of James, then of all the apostles. Quote, Last of all, he was seen of me also. End of quote. The emphasis laid upon the words, quote, he was seen, end of quote, cannot fail to be remarked. The evidence is irresistible. It is ocular de- demonstration testified and testified not by one or two, but by a multitude of witnesses, men who would not lie, who could not be deceived, yet it it appears there were some among the Corinthians who said, quote, that there is no resurrection of the dead, end of quote. It seems incomprehensible to us how such denial should be compatible with Christian discipleship. It is not said, however, that they questioned the fact of Christ's resurrection, though the apostle shows that their pinnacle or their principles led to that conclusion. His argument with them is a reductio ad absurdum. He lands them in the state of blank negation in which there is no Christ, no Christianity, and no apostolic veracity, no uh, future life, and no salvation, no hope. They have cut away the ground from under their feet, and they are left without a Savior in darkness and despair. But But as we have said, they do not seem to have denied the fact of Christ's resurrection. On the contrary, this is the argument by means of which the apostle convicts convinces them of the absurdity. Had they not admitted this, the apostle's argument would have had no force, neither could they have been regarded uh, as Christian believers at all. Some light, however, is thrown upon this strange uh, skepticism or skepticism by the epistles to the Thessalonians. An opinion not very dissimilar appears to have prevailed at Thessalonica. So at least we may may infer from first Thessalonians uh, chapter four four verse thirteen, etc. They had given themselves up to despair on the account of the death of some of their friends previous to the coming of the Lord, they appear to have regarded this as a calamity which excluded the departed from the participation of the blessedness which they expected at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The apostle claims they fear their fears and corrects their mistake by declaring that the departed saints would suffer no disadvantage 
but would be raised again at the coming of Christ and entered along with the living into the presence and joy of the Lord. This shows that there had been doubts about the resurrection of the dead in the Thessalonia in the Thessalonian church, as well as in Corinth. And it is highly probable that they were of the same nature in both. The anxious desire of all Christians was to be alive at the Lord's coming. Death, therefore, was regarded as a calamity, but it would not have been a calamity had they been aware that there was to be a resurrection of the dead. This was the truth which they either did not know or did not believe. St. Paul treats the doubt in Thessalonica as ignorance, and Corinth as error, and it is highly probable that among a people so conceited and pragmatical as the Corinthians, the opinion would assume a more decided and dangerous shape. <clears throat> it may be observed also that the apostle meets the case of Thessalonians with much of the same reasoning as that of the Corinthians is by an appeal to the fact of the resurrection of Christ. Quote, if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, etc., First Thessalonians, First Thessalonians uh, chapter 4, verse 14. The two cases, therefore, are very similar, if not per precisely parallel. We can easily imagine that to the early Christians, often smarting under the bitter persecution and watching eagerly for the expected coming of the Lord, it must have been a grievous disappointment to be taken away by death before the fulfillment of their hopes. And to this the difficulty which the idea of resurrection of the dead would naturally present to the Gentile converts. 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15.35 It was a doctrine at which the philosophers of Athens mocked, which made Festus exclaim, oh, Paul, thou, thou art mad, and which the scientific men... That was in the quotes, Paul, thou art man, in quotes. And which the scientific men of the time declared to be preposterous, a thing, quote, impossible even to God, end quote. So much for the probable nature and origin of this error of the Corinthians. The apostle is combating its ascribes, the combating its ascribes, the glorious boon what is that? The glorious boon? Describes the glorious something another of the resurrection. It says boon. Boon other of the resurrection to the uh, to the mediatorial interpretation of Christ. It is a part of the benefits arise from his redemptive work. As the first Adam brought death, so the second Adam brings life. And as the pledge of the resurrection of his people, he himself rose from the dead and became the first fruits of the great harvest of the grave. But there is a due, there is a due order and secession in this new life of the future, as the first fruits proceed and predict the harvest, so the resurrection of Christ proceeds and guarantees the resurrection of his people. Christ, quote, Christ the first fruits, afterwards they that are Christ at his coming, end of quote. This is a most important statement and un ambiguously affirms 
what is indeed the uniform teaching of the New Testament, that the parousia was to be immediately followed by the resuscitation of the sleeping dead. He comes, quote, that he may awake them out of sleep, end quote. The first epistle of the Thessalonians supplies the hiatus which the apostles leave here. Quote, for the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God. And first the dead of Christ, the dead in Christ shall rise, and then who we who are alive and remain shall be caught up all together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So shall we ever be uh, with the Lord, end of quote. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16 and 17. In the passage before us, the apostle does not enter into this detail, these details. He is arguing for the resurrection, and he stops short for the present at the, that point, adding only the significant words, then, quote, then the end, end of quote as much as to say, quote, that is the end, end of quote, or, quote, now it is done, end of quote, or, quote, the mystery of God is finished, end of quote. But we must venture to ask, what is the end, in quotes, this, uh, I guess like a Greek word, it is no new term, but a familiar praise, which we have often met before and shall often meet again, if we turn our Lord's prophetic discourse, we find almost the self-same significant words, quote, then shall the end come, end quote. And they furnished us with the key to their meaning here, answering the question of the disciples, quote, tell us, and when shall these things be? And what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the age? End of quote. Our Lord specifies certain signs, such as the persecution and martyrdom of some of the disciples themselves, the defection and apostasy of many, the appearance of false prophets and deceivers, and lastly, the generation proclaimed, the general pro- proclamation of the gospel throughout the nations of the Roman Empire. And, quote, then, end of quote, he declares, quote, shall come the end, end of quote. Can there be the slightest doubt that the Greek word of the prophecy is the Greek word of the epistles? Or can there be a, a doubt that both are identical with the Greek words, of the disciples. Matthew 23, verse 3. But we have seen that the latter phrase refers not to, quote, the end of the world, end of quote, or the destruction of the material earth, but to the close of the age, or dispensation, then about to expire. We conclude, therefore, that, quote, the end, end of quote, of which St. Paul speaks in 1 Corinthians uh, 1524 is the same grand epoch so con- continually and prominently kept in view both of the gospel and the epistles when the whole civil and ecclesiastical polity of Israel <clears throat> with their city, their temple, and nationality and their law were swept out of existence by one tremendous wave of judgment. And that looks like a good place to stop. Yeah. That was kind of, I imagine, probably hard for anybody to listen to. It was hard for me to read, so. But, um... We'll carry on. Uh, 
Perusia. What does that mean for us? Anyways, as people who believe in Jesus Christ, what does that mean? If the second coming already happened? And we got to figure out something. We've got to figure out what our faith is really about, don't we? And I don't understand why, um, you know, Christians are seem to be, you know, terrible liars. And, uh, and most of them are. I have to be honest with you. Most of them are. They're not they, They're not the great people that they present themselves to be. And, uh, um, you know, what makes them such liars? Well, if you're thinking that uh, you believe in it, something's not real and you're spouting it out, then eh, you're a liar, <laughs> whether intentionally or not. Whether it's intentional or not. Anyways, it's important stuff to me. No one else is important to me. Once again, it's intellectual defense. I mean, look at all these people, and you see the same thing happen over and over again, and it's just the end of the world. The only people that this benefits, the end of the world, are the power elite and, you know, keeping you off, off balance and keeping you from not taking care of business now, I guess. A guest too. I'm gonna end. Probably do another recording uh, later on today. So.